Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day. It is the 30th of June. This is episode 174. Uh, big show coming up. So we're going to be talking uh, the latest with Job Seeker. We're going to be talking about vaping. The US needs a new national anthem, which I'm looking forward to. Mm. And really exciting guests. And Peter, I might get you to set this one up because this was Peter Gregory. Uh, this is a Peter Gregory find. And I I did not hear, I had not heard of this person before uh, you set up this interview. And this is a very good find by you. Yeah, we've been pushing to have this lady on for a few weeks, but we had to do a couple of important interviews in the last two weeks. Her name is Naya Follerin Iman, and she's from the UK. She's very young. She's only 23, and she writes for Spike. She's in charge of a thing called the Free Speech Union. She's been a candidate for the Brexit Party in the 2018, sorry, 2019 UK general election. She's a rising star, and her tweets during the Black Lives Matters protests and all the things with the statues and all the cancellations and things like that have been awesome. And I really wanted to get her on. It was great to speak to her last night. And uh, yeah, it's a really good chat. Don't want to spoil it too much, but stick around. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Pete, you know me pretty well. Uh, we've known mm. each other a fair few years now. You know that I'm uh, the king of mayo. There's, not, there's never been a story I haven't felt the need to embellish, but this is the coldest I've ever been in my life. Uh, it's so cold. We're back on Zoom. I'm in my home. I've never been this cold. Yeah, it's freezing. I could see my breath in my house this morning, which is just should be illegal and Anaya was talking about in our chat pre-interview how it's nice and warm in London which is just garbage so yeah uh, yeah you do have a bit of mayo this that's true but you know I've lost all dexterity in my fingers whenever I try to type anything this morning it's just basically who's pounding away on a keyboard and just <laughs> hoping that the English language pops up but we're going to pursue anyway let yeah. us start with Job Seeker because that's a big news in the Australian and Sky News today. New National Skills Commission data to be released today reveals that one in mo- one uh, more than one in two employers who are struggling to recruit workers recruit workers say their top challenge as they look to rehire following COVID nineteen economic shock is a lack of applicants, and this feeds mm. into Job Seeker. Uh, do you want to talk about this, Pete? Yeah, sure. So obviously, this is just people that are struggling to re- recruit their workers. Um, but yeah, fifty percent of them say it's because of a lack of applicants, as James just said, which is amazing given how many people are out of work at the moment and the, and the struggles we're having with the economy. There's, this has to be connected to JobKeeper, which for many people, particularly in casual employment and not full-time employment, is more than what they're earning. So why you can't blame them? They're not, you know. I don't think these people are stupid or bludgers or anything like that. Why would you take less money for to work when you get more than that for free? Now, obviously, JobKeeper is set to end September 27. That pushes on to keep it going. You know, when we talk uh, people on the left, unions, uh, the you know, left-wing think tanks, things like that, they are like, we need to keep this going because we need to make sure that people have money to spend in the shops, which is obviously stupid. If that was the case, if the government had it, you know, a bottomless pool of money and, and if they just gave it to people, that would be great for the economy. It should be like $5 million and we should have it for everyone. So uh, the push is on and we've already seen this, some of the problems. I don't think they'll extend it. I just don't think that Morrison is, is, is going to do that. But, um, you know, that's the discussion. Yeah, I'm with you. This is basically just a wake-up call that shows why this was uh, always meant to be a temporary policy and we can't keep it forever. I mean, you know, you, you want to bring it in because this was going to be, and it was, a huge wave of unemployment and a huge wave of suffering. And you want to make sure you can at least limit some of the damage from people that have done uh, their out of job through no fault of their own and through just, you know, the extraneous circumstance of a government lockdown. So I get that. And then as you say, like, I can't, 
befault any person not going out of their way in the middle of a pandemic to work when they could be getting more money. But the number one form of welfare is always a job. The whole design of this uh, policy was always to keep people in jobs and then help people look for jobs once coronavirus restrictions started to ease. And now that they are in basically every state except Victoria, which we'll get into in a bit, you just got to make sure people are getting back into work. And that's why it's temporary. So it's had a good shelf life. It's now, we're now at the end. Mm, no, exactly right. It's something that will, it will keep being a major thing of discussion, but I don't think they'll extend it, but we'll see. All right. So let's talk about, so a lot of states, they're opening up. I mean, Western Australia, the nightclubs are back in touch. So shout out to all our West Australian club rat listeners. <laughs> a, few, a few other things are happening. But it. Victoria, we have taken a giant step back as we talked about last week. And it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. So we had 75 new cases over a 24-hour period here in Victoria over the weekend. Um, I guess I'm kind of happy that so far the government's basically looking at a suburb-by-suburb look at lockdowns because when the original one was brought in there were communities in country victoria where they didn't have coronavirus and yet no one could go golfing no one could go fishing no one could do anything which was like well why why can't i if the coronavirus isn't here so at least it's slightly different for now i don't i mean just reading the tea leaves on how everything's going i think there will be a pretty stringent lockdown anytime soon and the other thing i'd say about it is the state with the biggest lockdown, the most restrictive lockdowns, the most punitive policies is also the state that has the quote unquote second wave. So I think you need to kind of rethink what do lockdowns achieve? Yeah, no, you're exactly right about the the regions. I it, They should be locking down individual regions rather than the whole state when there's some places with more cases than others. But they should have done that from the start. There's no reason why, they, as I said last week, they couldn't have... Uh, at least let some of those regions in the country not be locked down to the extent that Melbourne is. But that's an interesting point you make about the most onerous restrictions. I actually saw something from Professor Peter Collignon, who is an infectious diseases expert. He says that he reckons the Victorian government was overzealous with increased policing and issuing fines uh, to address the pandemic earlier on and that because people were so limited in their actions and the virus was not widely spreading people grew fatigued with the with the um restrictions uh and have less incentive to to follow them now so he's basically saying that because it was so onerous at the start and it didn't really and it was overly onerous people relaxed a little bit so he sort of feeds into your point um and then i'd say like in america there's this idea that americans are just over coronavirus which is pretty you know, I would I would almost say obvious when you see those photos that go viral about like people hanging out in beaches and people, uh, you know, hanging out in night spots and stuff. And mm. if Victoria slides into the same way, and we didn't even like no one has the antibodies to fight coronavirus, so we're basically going through our first wave, but we're already sick of restrictions, then that's going to be a pretty big public health crisis. Yeah, no, definitely right. Uh, and the other thing I'd say about this is that there isn't that much evidence, for example, that people are transmitting the virus in cafes and restaurants a lot of it's in family homes return travelers obviously making up a big part of it so there isn't much evidence that it's those businesses so once again a little bit more nuance in the restrictions would be great if those places could stay open or or sorry extend the amount of people that are allowed to go there uh given it's not really contributing much that would be a great thing for those businesses and a great thing for the community so yeah Yeah, interesting to see how that'll go Last thing I want to say about Victoria. Now, the number one lifesaver policy from Corona to me is obviously two weeks stay in a hotel once you come in from overseas. Like that just was as common sense as possible. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's come out this week 
is Victoria isn't making tests when you're in that quarantine compulsory. And it's up to a th like 30% of people are saying, do not test me while I'm in quarantine. And then they're out in the community. Mm. I can't believe that. Like, if you, you can't have a cafe, have more than 21 people, or there's like the risk of a fine. But if you're in quarantine, you just come home from overseas and you say, I'd rather not be tested. The Victorian government's like, all right, back into the community. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's, and that's we're the only state that's done that. Uh, yeah. And they've changed it now and they've extended it from... And if you, if you don't take the test, you have to stay in quarantine for an extra 10 days. Uh, but yeah, we're the only state that's done that. And I, you know, I'm obviously really kind of reticent to force people to do tests and things like that. But in a pandemic when everyone else is under onerous restrictions, that seems like a real common uh, sense one. And it's not like you forcing people to have the test. It's like you don't have to have the test, but you have to stay in quarantine if you don't want to take the test. So yeah, if people I could... really, really, really don't want to do it, then they don't have to. For a state with the biggest lockdowns, I could not believe that. Uh, let's look at some other states. So this is blind speculation as we record because Palajay has not given the press conference talking about Queensland's state border closures. I don't know if we want to do, like, let's let's guess or let's do, uh, we'll do two editions. One that she does open the borders on July 12, one that she doesn't. And we'll just play whichever one's correct. But uh, it's certainly like, the, again, reading tea leaves doesn't look too good for a July 12 reopening. I know that's what Pauline Hansen's saying based on what's happening here in Victoria. But Pete, border closures has been a big bugbear for you and mm. I want you to have the floor right now. Oh, well, just as I've been saying on the show, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but they said that the Federal Health Authority said there was no health reason to have border closures. So I don't know why why they're still closed. Uh, she might open them. Maybe maybe that's something she'll do. Also, it's like if you've got such a problem with Victoria, open them for other states. It doesn't it? If it's, if it's, if it's if you, like the Northern Territory, for example, has like zero cases or something. Yeah, South low. Australia as well. Like if Western Australia, they deem it too uh, healthy enough to open up the nightclubs, then surely like they're pretty confident that people can travel interstate and be safe. Yeah. So, yeah. So, once again, a bit of nuance would be great. I also would sort of point out that Hugh, our manager, who is a trans DJ, told <laughs> us specifically that we had yep. to mention that the nightclubs were open in Western Australia. So, Hugh, <laughs> we listen. Uh, and I, you could apparently there were queues forming at 11.59 p.m. before they came in. Imagine that just all those photos of like those politicians in the sun drinking beers and I'm yeah. stuck in my kitchen. Come on, Western Australia. It sounds good. Still not allowed to uh, kiss and hold hands in nightclubs, though, so behave yourselves. <laughs> All righty. Uh, I'm going to take this national for the next segment. So this was uh, a really great editorial in the Sydney Morning Herald on Sunday, basically talking about COVID safe. So COVID safe, yep. the tracing app, $2 million. Uh, everyone was encouraged to sign up. A lot of people did. Millions of people downloaded it, in fact. And Pete and I have said more than once that it was a bit of a honeypot. I mean, like, it was just sitting there for international hackers to hack into. And you think about, like, all the... Uh, whether or not Australia is under cyber attack the last few weeks, certainly do not want people hacking into that many people's personal data, which was just sitting there for the taking. But we were told, you know what, it's worth it. It's just so important to keeping the community safe. Well, I'm going to read uh, out the Sydney Morning Herald on Sunday, the editorial. As reported in the Sun Herald, despite it having been downloaded by more than 6 million people, the app had not identified one close contact of a person infected with COVID-19 who had not already been found through manual contact tracing. By any measure, that is a terrible failure. Victoria's Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton said last week his contract tracers had downloaded the app's data 30 times, but had not identified anyone who wasn't already uncovered through the manual interview process. New South Wales health officials have downloaded the contact data from the app 10 times, but again, no new contacts or cases had been identified. Six million people, two million dollars. Everyone should download the app. We're going to keep you safe, but we're not going to use it. 
Yeah, it hasn't it hasn't panned out. I don't know if they got the downloads they thought. Six point two million. I thought they thought they were going to get ten million. Or maybe they were just aiming for ten million. But anyway, yeah, like no, it's made no improvements, and it's just created this vast security threat at a time when we know that there are increasing, uh, what's the word, attacks on our data from people overseas, people overseas. So, um, yeah, it's been a failure, James. And remember, it was like, want to go to the footy? Download the app. So there was a bit of that going on, and it hasn't actually made any difference. Mm-hmm. All right. And then last topic I want to talk into before we get into heroes and villains is vaping. Now, do you want to talk about this, Hobbit, or should I? Nah, I'll, I'll talk about it, mate. I'll talk about it. Uh, so it was going to be this Wednesday, tomorrow, that uh, importing nicotine as a liquid for vaping in the form of e-cigarettes was going to be criminalized. It was going to come with a 220K fine. And in addition, if you'd ordered it previous to them making this rule, uh, and it hadn't turned up yet. They were just going to take it off you. No refund. Um, however, due to a backlash from national senators Matt Canavan and George Christen- Christensen and the IPA and a number of people out there in the community. And I want to say that of- Barnaby Joyce, by the way. I did not yeah, expect Barnaby, Barnaby Joyce. Joyce to get all up and about uh, vaping, but there he was. So good on it you, Barnaby. It is a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. What, 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 what sparked that with Barnaby? Uh, just, you know, liberty's liberty, all right? Sometimes it's going to penetrate people, so there we go. Barnaby Joyce is on the side of the good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. Barnaby Joyce. Uh, so they're going to delay the ban by six months and, and introduce a process where patients can obtain prescriptions for nicotine, for nicotine containing e-cigarettes from their GP, which is still highly regulated, but a better outcome than there was. Uh, there was a thing in the in the Oz about what might be the real reason behind this attack on vaping from the government. There's uh, a, a pack of cigarettes cost around one hundred twenty five dollars, uh, one hundred twenty five a dollar twenty five a stick, uh, and around eighty percent or eighty cents of that goes to the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth pocketed twelve point one five billion in tobacco excise last year, and budget estimates for the next financial year put the excise grab at sixteen point nine billion. So there's a massive financial incentive for the government to keep people smoking, James. Um, And you can see how that is something they don't want to give up. I'm not saying that's the reason, but it's certainly a massive consideration. Um, Look, I'd say vaping is not good for you, but it's better than smoking. That's the key message. Like, if if you don't smoke, it's bad. Don't Don't take up vaping because it's bad for you. But... According to the UK Royal College of Physicians report in 2016, the health hazard arising from long-term vapour inhalation from e-cigarettes available today is unlikely to exceed 5% of the harm of smoking a real dart. That's massive. Yeah, it is. Like uh, The whole government idea that, okay, we've got to get rid of vaping because it's going to lead people to go from vaping to cigarettes is sort of like saying that off-ramps lead to freeways. Like Technically, yes, but that's not the way the traffic is going. I mean... Uh, anecdotally from all my friends they were on regular cigarettes they've moved to vaping I don't know a single person that went from nothing to vaping so what you're basically doing is just keeping people on cigarette if you get rid of vaping you're just keeping people on cigarettes which is so much worse for their health and you know like there was this idea that uh, you know we've got to listen to public health campaign but I, I don't know I'm not swayed by public health uh, research and analysis that basically says well vaping looks like smoking if you squint a little yeah, is that that's doesn't sound like very thorough research. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's basically what I hear when people start talking about uh, vaping leading to cigarettes. It's just like, oh, it's kind of the same action. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly right. And it's not like Australia's going out there on a limb. The US, 
New Zealand and the UK have legalized and regulated smoke-free products. So we're just doing the same thing as that. And that would yeah. be a decision that would literally kill heaps of people. So I'm glad I mean, We talked about happened. this with Dr. Joe on the show last year, which is, you know, if your end goal yeah, is to make Joe. sure people don't smoke cigarettes, which is every, which should be everyone's goal, like we don't mm. want people smoking cigarettes, then I cannot understand why you don't like vaping. Yeah. Like uh, at, least, at least let people get off cigarettes that way. It's weird. It's this thing in public health where it's like... Every, there's no uh, capacity for grey. There's no capacity for people to do it like a something that's not good for them, but it's better than something else. I don't quite know what I'm getting at here, but it's like, you know, we want everyone to be... This no, is just the perfect, scat, just scat. This is good. This is the perfect lifestyle and because vaping is bad for you and it is worse for you than not doing anything, we're going to say don't do it. Like there's no room for nuance in public health is what I'm saying. Alrighty. Uh, let's go over to Heroes and Villains. Loaded one this week. So this is a Grunt the Pig Freedom Award. This is the uh, the pig that stood up to the local council, which tried to find it for being a pig that was slightly too big. Friend of the show, yeah. Grunt the Pig, I should also mention. So go back and listen to that one. But yeah. these, um, you know, we bestow the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort on people that have stood up for freedom and liberty around the world. Pete, who is your nomination for the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snout Snort this week? Uh the freedom snort forget- from the freedom snout. Yeah, the snout of freedom. We do forget that he was a friend of the show. That is an important interview that people should go back and listen to. When I've we never seen you so happy. It was <laughs> a great day. Got up and about. It was, Peter Gregory had found his brethren. It was real. This is why I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Wangaratta to talk to a pig. Anyway, uh, Colorado is my hero this week, James. The state of Colorado qualified a... Mu- so we talked about Black Lives Matters. We talked about the death of George Floyd and how there was within the protest movement some really genuine things that were valid and should be reformed um, before it morphed into something more, uh, I guess, a broader attack on culture or whatever you like to call it. But before we got to that stage, there were some really important criminal justice issues on the table. One of those was qualified immunity, which was introduced in 1967 in the United States by the Supreme Court itself, James, which is an important point. This is an example of judicial activism gone wrong, as it generally does. Anyway, it grants government's officials, if you don't know what it is, it grants government officials uh, performing discretionary functions, immunity from civil suits, unless the the plaintiff shows that the official violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights, of which a reasonable person would have known. Now, what that means is it was meant to shield police officers from, uh, what's the word, frivolous cases, because, you know, police officers are always involved in... uh, what would you call it, sort of risky situations. However, it's been used since 2005 to protect police officers from um, using excessive force and many times lethal force. And if you go on the internet and Google qualified immunity and look at some of the cases, they are just horrendous, some of the things that have happened to people in the United States. Uh, and And the police have been able to get away with it because of qualified immunity. So it's a really bad thing. Uh, now, what has happened in Colorado is Governor Jared Polis has signed into law a law called the Law Enforcement Integrity and Accountability Act. It is basically it, cr- it creates a, a uh, another act which which people can use when um, when bringing a case against the police. So it doesn't dis- it doesn't get rid of the federal one because it doesn't have the power to, but it enables them to to use that one instead. So basically, it's a it's a kind of a workaround for qualified immunity, and it's a genuinely it's genuinely a thing that should be reformed and it's great to see that, that that's happened in Colorado. Very good stuff. Uh, my hero this week, uh, we, I don't think we have a name for this guy, but basically it's, it's footage that comes from a protest about a statue of uh, Abraham Lincoln 
in reference to him freeing the slaves. Uh, I think it's called the Emancipation Statue, but it's changed its name. But anyway, so Abraham, it's the statue of Abraham Lincoln. He's holding the De- uh, Emancipation Declaration uh, in one hand, and there is a freed slave on his right, uh, on his left. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, when I saw the statue, I'm like, okay, that's not my favorite uh, representation of a black man I've ever seen in my life. But it's an important statue, and people wanted to protest it. And so out came tour guides from Washington, D.C., the, the men in these, this video that I'm about to play, they're, they're, they're black tour guides, they're in Washington, D.C., and they do not want the statue torn down. And one lady from the statue really gets up and about trying to get them out of the way. So I'm going to play the footage now. So why are we fighting? Who paid for Why are we fighting? You look just like me. Who, 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 you are fighting, you two are fighting because divide and conquer, divide and conquer has been Why are you fighting me? I'm not fighting you. I'm actually fighting you. No, here's the thing. Here's the part. Okay, first off, I'm a drama kid. I've said that on the show before. Respect the hustle of turning up to defend a statue dressed as Frederick Douglass and what appears to be committing to character. Okay, because when the second guy comes in and he says, uh, because divide and conquer, like that's a Frederick Douglass quote about how people uh, try to uh, tear other people apart to get their own ways, which is what he's saying is happening right now. So commitment to character and dress is fantastic now one of the many protests like the reason he's a hero is basically one of the many reasons i do not go to protests is because they absolutely bring out the worst in people and uh that scares me and i don't want to be around when those things go down i mean i would definitely hope that if you showed that woman that clip back she would go okay that's not really how i should have handled the situation so just credit to those two gentlemen for being like confronted with the worst type of screaming and bad name bad faith arguments and so many people around that are out number them and just keeping a cool head and saying we're not fighting just and i want to uh praise him for that now i went down an internet wormhole because he started to say who paid for the statue and i was like all right who did pay for the statue so i went down the internet wormhole uh apologies to scott hargraves who was still waiting for an article from the ipa review for me but uh it's coming today and uh it was, the statue itself was paid for by freed slaves and then i read frederick Douglass's speech at the opening of the statue which by the way was an absolute roast of Abraham Lincoln. He said Mm. Lincoln didn't care about the slaves. He would have just uh, kept slavery if it meant saving the Union, which is all true. He said that uh, American people were Lincoln's children, but that black people were Lincoln's adopted children. But then at the end of his speech, he says, but Lincoln is a man that freed the slaves, and so he gets a statue, which is just what we're saying. Statues do not have to glorify every action that a person did, but they are important cornerstones in uh, our cultural history, and people need to learn both the good and the bad, and statues are a way of reminding everyone about that. So statues start conversations and everyone has to keep them going. So to those gentlemen, that's my freedom snout of the, uh, freedom snort of the week. Very good. Frederick Douglass, of course, an escaped slave who became an abolitionist. Very famous. Check him out. He's written some books that are fantastic. And this is a point I made in our interview. She said, you know, it's going to take grassroots uh, efforts. And this is, you know, we talk about someone actually having the courage to go and defend a statue in this, in this climate is really brave. And it's little efforts like that that add up over time. So, yeah, great hero, mate. Let's do villains. So this is called the fake, the Extinction Rebellion fake nerdy run award because Extinction Rebellion said they were trying to save the world and they were doing a nerdy run and it was not, they weren't nude. And that struck me as villainous. Here's the tape. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. James, who is your Extinction Rebellion fake nerdy run award winner this week? 
Uh, Pete, I'm going to read out a sentence to you, and let me, uh, and then I would just want you to figure out whether or not you'd be happy with that codified in uh, state law, I guess. So, this state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, or public contracting. Good or bad? Good sentence. Good sentence. Now, California has struck that from the legislator on uh, Wednesday last week. It's out. Uh-oh. That sentence is gone. So, it's not over because the people need to vote on it. But the idea that 30 to 10 elected representatives of a state as, uh, you know, as diverse and as progressive as California can just go, you know what, we do not need equality before the law anymore, mm. chills me to my core. Like, is that how far we've come from what was a civil rights argument 50 years ago? Yeah, well, we just didn't see how the vote turns out, but this is what we're talking about. This is, you know, this difference between a color. We talked about it with Anaya this difference between you know a colorblind legal system and one that talks about people's race all the time and treats people differently according to their race. It's a real, real worry to see that actually come into the uh, formal legal system. I mean, it is in in other parts of the world as well, but uh, in the in a place like the United States, it's even worse. So, yeah, good one, mate. Uh, all right, my villain, quick one: Northumbria Police in the UK. Tweet from them, June 25, will be in attendance to facilitate a planned Black Lives Matters vigil at Keel Square in Sunderland tonight. Next part of the tweet, a Section 14 order is in place forbidding any other public assembly, including counter-protest, to ensure the public safety. Anyone with concerns should ring 101. So the police just blatantly picking and choosing who's allowed to protest. If you're supporting one political cause, you can protest. If you're supporting a different political cause, you can't. It's a real worry that no one at the police realises that that is not their role at all. So, or that they do realise and they just go, you know what, I don't want to cause a stir. Which is, yeah. like, you know, either you enforce a law or it's not a law. Yeah, I don't know. Do you reckon it's that? Do you reckon it's they... Or they just think it's really good or... I don't know. I mean, Maybe they just... That speaks to basic end of society stuff if 100% of the police don't realise what's going on. I just think the people that are making decisions and then the people that are running the social media accounts have been hijacked. And, yeah. you know, like that, that, that is losing faith in institutions level worth stuff right there, which is yeah. bad. Yeah, like they're risk averse and they don't want to cause trouble, but at the end of the day, they are the police. Yes. All right, that's it for me, mate. Okay, uh, let us go to the interview now. All right, g'day everyone. We are here with Anaya Foller and Iman. We've been trying to get this lady on the podcast for a while. This is going to be a fantastic interview. Anaya is a director of the Free Speech Union, columnist for Spiked, which as we know is uh, has the great Brendan O'Neill as the editor, uh, and a candidate for the Brexit party in the 2019 UK general election. She's been absolutely on fire on Twitter and uh in the media as the Black Lives protests have taken hold across the world discussing freedom of speech, liberty and human potential. That's Anaya, not the Black Lives Matters protests. Now, first off, Anaya, thank you very much for being on the show. At the ripe old age of 24, do you have any tips for James and I on becoming a successful person? Oh, I'm actually 23. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that makes Only 23. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I, I think that I would just genuinely say, um, I guess make sure that you kind of massively know your stuff. Um, and I'm sure you guys do. I think I see a lot of young people um, involved in politics that are all about the kind of passion and the and the energy and the idealism. But when it comes to the substance, unfortunately, that seems to be kind of lacking um, a lot of the time. And, and, and I think that we've seen that particularly 
Um, recently, when we see the kind of campus free speech wars, um, a lot of the things that happen with Brexit, a lot of people might be against what is happening, but they don't actually know some of the foundational ideas of you know, why freedom of speech is important, what democracy means, what our obligations as citizens are. And so I think, yeah, know your stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you brought up freedom of speech because that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about first because in an article in Spiked uh, that you wrote this month, you talked about how freedom of speech is essential to the advancement of minority communities through its history. And I don't think that's a very uh, widespread belief anymore. I think people, like most speech codes that governments bring in are usually designed to protect communities. Uh, and I just want to know, like, uh, from your perspective, why is freedom of speech so important? Yeah, no, I think it's it's been astonishing um, how this particular um, aspect of free speech has completely been uh, not really emphasised. Well, obviously, if you are in the majority, you know, freedom of speech isn't necessarily um, as uh, pertinent because your ideas, generally speaking, are backed up by power and popularity. It's views of the minority that generally need protecting, and that and we saw that historically during the civil rights movement, whether that was kind of LGBT and um, people, they were exercising their free speech to um, challenge the structures that were um, organised against them. And um, when you have uh, free speech, um, it's important. Um, specifically for minority people because then they cannot necessarily have the structures um, that are in power to kind of subjugate them and pre prevent them from um, exercising their free speech and you see it with the black lives matter protest anyway it's astonishing but we see all of these placards all of these statements that are being made that are highly inflammatory um highly uh, uh shocking and often divisive but it's their free speech that they're quite happy to use to make many of those statements um but they're not necessarily um, that welcoming of other people using it um, to challenge them. Also, do you find it a bit patronising as a member of an ethnic minority yourself, you know, the idea that speech is violence? Do you find that, think, well, you know, hang on, I can, uh, I can decide for myself if something's, you know, offensive or not, I don't need you to protect me from that? Yeah, no, I think it's a deeply um, pernicious idea when we are massively muddying the waters with um, our definitions and we see this in many different aspects but yeah speech is speech that doesn't mean that speech can be cannot be provocative and offensive and and troubling but ultimately it is words and i think that when we try and muddy the waters and associate speech with violence and particularly allow that to be defined by what is essentially um um, a, a minority group of people to define what can and cannot be said and associating it with actual physical violence, I think that we're in deeply troubling waters, particularly now. We are in a multi-ethnic and diverse society. You cannot have diversity of ethnicity and culture and all of these things without having diversity of thought and ideas. And that means that you're gonna have, you're gonna offend people. You're gonna make things, you're gonna say things that are gonna make people uncomfortable and they don't like. That's part and parcel of living in a diverse society. So I, I completely disagree with this idea about speech as violence. I think it needs to be fundamentally rejected. Uh, that's fantastic. I want to talk about another article you had, I think it was only a few days ago, actually, talking about white identity politics. And I, mm. this to me is a really, really important topic because, well, I'm, I mean, just have a brief look at the history of the 20th century. Now, my take is uh, when society starts talking about the need to put people into groups and that there's this idea that the groups are in conflict with another, that there's always this power, uh, when you push people to think of themselves in groups, don't don't be surprised when some people do, and some people start making some really bad assumptions about what that means. So, uh, yeah, my just take for you, like I really liked your article. So, do you want to talk about where this identity politics comes from? Yeah, so it, a lot of people seem to think that um, 
particularly the current manifestation of identity politics is somehow a kind of continuation of the earlier civil rights struggles. Actually, it is such a significant departure when we saw uh, many of the um, very, very powerful and legitimate um, struggles for civil rights. What was emphasized was common humanity. It was highly universalistic and humanistic, and it wasn't this very di di um, divisive narrative of, again, my identity versus yours in some kind of hierarchy of oppression, which is kind of known within this intersectional um, narrative. It was universalistic. And that is essentially what um, that famous Martin Luther King quote is, you know, judged by the content of our character, um, not the color of our skin. And now, particularly in the last 10 years, we've seen this acceleration with identity politics. It is pretty much fundamentally the opposite. It is elevating um, the group over the individual. And you see the, um, that manifested in multiple ways, particularly ways in which we see when you have ethnic minority, and we've seen this a lot in Britain, that feel patriotic, feel that they belong, um, feel that, you know, things need to be improved, but overall, you know, Britain is a great place to live. They are um, not that their agency is denied, their subjectivity is denied, and they're seen as kind of agents of white supremacy, so to speak. And so this has huge overlaps with um, white identity white identity politics which historically was defeated which had a lot of kind of um similarities with uh, many racist notions that these kind of movements are arguing to uh, that they're fighting against but actually now it's almost become a symbiotic relationship if you ask people to judge by race to define themselves by race to to, to think about race and to racialize society inevitably all different groups are going to end up doing that um such as white people also and you know i felt um, yeah, I've seen a, a massive uptick. I still think, obviously, um, the far right in Britain is essentially infinitesimal. But I think that the narratives that are being perpetuated currently are um, a gift to that kind of um, identitarian narrative on the left or on the right. And so, I, again, I think um, we need to ensure that we are not um, re-racializing society and winding the clock back on decades, decades worth of progress on this issue. Well, that's exactly right. You mentioned uh, in your piece the other day, which was about colour blindness, uh, you said the landscape for race relations may well be considered one of the few victories for progress in recent decades. I feel like we had this kind of moment for like five minutes that was unprecedented in human history that was like we all kind of agreed racism was bad. We all kind of agreed, as you mentioned, Martin Luther King, we should be judging people on the colour of their uh, – on the <laughs> content of the character, not the colour of their skin. Uh, now, what is the benefits – for ethnic minorities of that colorblinded viewpoint? And also what are, what are, what's the negatives for ethnic minorities uh, of the other viewpoint, which is that we have to make race central to everything that we do, um, particularly in terms of, I guess, p people having agency in pursuing their, their destiny? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I think the benefits of colorblindness is that you are treated as an individual. You know, you, you are respected for your individuality, for your unique mind, your unique characteristics, and your contribution to the world is valued based off of what you do, not necessarily what you look like. That is essentially what we all should be striving for, you know, respect for ourselves as human beings and, and actually transcending a lot of these kind of artificial categories and judgments that I think are bounding um, people down. And I think on top of that, you know, that that is that is essentially what I define as progress, where we are no longer bound by stereotypes, biases, judgments that um, are solely based off the color of their skin. I think that that is an incredibly beneficial thing. And I believe that is genuinely the direction we were going on before um, 
this kind of identity politics narrative um, has emerged. And yeah, the negative um, of identity politics is that you know if, if you veer away even slightly from this uh, very uh, specific idea of what it means to be black, what it means to be Asian, what it means to be white, then you are um, excommunicated, essentially. You are cast away and, and you are denied um, essentially a platform. And I think on top of that, it's really undermining of meritocracy. I think ideas of kind of freedom, agency, meritocracy, personal responsibility seem to have completely disappeared from public discourse, particularly in the social justice narrative. And meritocracy obviously is that, you know, when it comes to a job, the best person gets the job. And that means that the hard work and things that you've built up are what is valued. But unfortunately now it's become a tick box exercise. You know, you you take your, your skin color and then they have a, a quota or something to kind of fit you into a certain box. And you know, how is that valuing of, of who you are as a person? Uh, I think that, um, yeah, I think it's just winding the clock back. And I think, um, as I said in the white identity politics um, article that I wrote, it will inevitably cause um, a backlash, I think. Uh, how, like, this might be just the defining question of the next couple of years, but it's like, how do we get this back? Because my view is eventually so many people will be cancelled that uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, everyone who is cancelled just gets to be in the majority now. And if you haven't been cancelled, then that's this tiny minority and I think that's like once everyone's been through it then we, we can put it behind us but then everyone has to get cancelled so are there any other ways that we can get people back to thinking about uh, each other in terms of individuals you know it's such an, it's such a sad set of affairs are in and I think that um, a lot of people have been talking about this for like more than a decade and they haven't been listened to you know in the beginning people thought it was this fringe group of like you know student zealots um and that it was kind of dismissed and now obviously many of those students have graduated taken powerful positions in institutions and transformed them and so you know what i've seen in the uk at least and you know i think it is in other western countries as well um this ideology this kind of woke identity politics ideology is now deeply embedded in many of our major institutions, even in Britain, we've seen it with the police and things like that. So I don't think it's going to be a quick fix. I don't think it's going to be, um, you know, some kind of grand policy idea that's going to solve everything and make us all kind of um, care about us as individuals again. I think it's going to be a, a, a long um, fight and an argument. I think it's going to be where ordinary people say no. They, if they haven't done anything wrong, don't apologize. You know, if you've done nothing wrong, don't allow yourself to be sacked, you know, take it to the employment tribunal. And in the UK, at least, you know, we've got this organization for the Free Speech Union that um, I, I co-direct. It only started a few months ago, who is now, we're now taking on so many cases of people being censored, silenced. And it's things like this where um, more organizations, more campaigns, more people um, stand up and, and essentially have to you know, take the reins of defending what we value within society. I think that's the only way really this is going to um, end because it doesn't seem like um, the, it's a very, it's a highly ideological movement. So even when society is collapsing, I think they will continue to go ahead with this, this ideology. I think a key one, I talk about this all, like regular listeners to the podcast will be, Peter always says this, it's got to be the universities. Like, People, millions of people just leave every year knowing for a fact that Western society is like fundamentally racist and knowing for a fact that the best way to solve problems um, is to get the government to do it for us. Is there any, have you got any insights on how we could maybe uh, 
I guess, change the university so at least different views are heard. So at least there's not necessarily all one way or all the other way, but just a broad range of students, of views for students to encounter. Yeah, I mean, again, so many things that are quite foundational to the society, which I believe is an incredible achievement, the one that we've been able to build, are being massively undermined. You know, going to university is meant to be, obviously, you know, to challenge your ideas, to refine it, to be put in uncomfortable, even to some extent, ideologically dangerous situations. And we have the exact opposite with safe spaces and, and you know, all of these types of speech codes. Um, I, I worry about universities. I don't know if it can be saved. I hope so. In the UK, even the most, you know, uh, the, the grandest universities are, are struggling with this particular issue. I mean, we, you know, I think uh, Oxford, Jordan Peterson had his um, fellowship rescinded and all of these types of things. It, it's not going to be um, easy. I think that um, what needs to be done is to empower students who are sceptical. So right now, you know, in the UK, there is this whole roads must fall um, protest to try and get this statue of a former colonialist removed. And I had so many emails from actual Oxford students who disagreed, but they were too scared to stand up. And actually, the, um, due to the protest, the um, Oxford administrators decided they were going to remove the statue. And so I thought that that was terrible for those students who don't support it, but don't feel confident to stand up. And so I think what is needed is, again, more organizations and other bodies that can provide resources, information, um, even support and advice to students who actually are willing to perhaps stand up and start taking this on. In the UK, again, there's an amazing student society called the Bristol Free Speech Society, which was started by a student and it's now kind of really made such an impact on campus. So I think it's got to be empowering um, students who are sceptical and giving them the information, knowledge and resources to be able to, to take the fight on at their university. It's, it's got to be, I think, definitely from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of university students that listen to this podcast, and so this is just when we talk to you directly and go, you know, what? make sure you're speaking up in tutorials. You don't want to mm-hmm. end up, like, seeing your statue go that you like just because people were too scared to say anything else. Uh, on the Roads Must Fall statue campaign, what I never got was, like why it has to be destroyed why can't you have a plaque just saying like all the bad things that Rhodes did as well uh to make sure that's respected and then also just build other statues of other people that have been important to oxford's community who you do want to highlight and make them even more prominent than the Rhodes statue yeah quick point i wanted to just add on the last thing i said you know regarding students i think it's also they really need to remember that that their legal right to free speech is protected so i think a lot of them you know often and think that they won't be supported. But if the, if you are being censored on campus, then your rights are actually being violated. So and many students have actually used that um, to be able to push back on authorities. So they should know that absolutely um, they are supported so- socially, legally, um, morally, in, in all those different types of ways. But um, in regards to the Rose Must Fall, yeah, you know, I, I completely agree. Unfortunately, you know, I, as I said, it's a deeply ideological movement we're seeing, which are not very interested in more creative, imaginative and um, substantive ways to um, bring to light the issues that they're talking about. It's very much about destruction. And, you know, many people, uh, Roger Scruton, a kind of late conservative philosopher, talked about the feeling of um, destruction is exhilarating, that the work of building is slow arduous and long and I think a lot of people you know in this day and age prefer the um, the former and in reality and I've written about this this whole everything that's happened so far not a single 
life of an ethnic minority will be improved by anything that's been done, whether that's, you know, the censorship, the, the statue toppling, how does this improve the material life of anyone? And I think a lot of people, it makes them feel good. Um, it, it gives them this sense of power, um, but it doesn't actually do anything. And I think that um, if we want to bring to light some of the perhaps darker elements of the past, which is fine, but not, not ideologically, um, just because knowledge is a value worth pursuing, um, then yeah, I agree with you. We need much more um, um, nuanced ways of doing that than just destroying things. Yeah, if I could just jump in, Pete, quickly, sorry. But like, uh, I mean, talking about how destroying things is so much easier than building things. I mean, two weeks ago, well, maybe a month ago, America was having a really important discussion about police brutality reform and how to make sure what happened to George Floyd never happens again. And mm. we skipped past all the necessary political reforms that were needed. And we're now talking about cartoons should be changed because actors are different and i just go like well hang on who's the, who who is that helping other than you can feel slightly better about what you watch on netflix like how does this help anyone from communities that don't have the best relationship with police yeah i think it, it's um well this on the first hand it does unfortunately show the kind of intellectual vacuousness of a lot of the movements that we are seeing it just does because you know a, a lot of movements that have emerged such as for example brexit in the uk you know the aims are very specific it was targeted it was top down and also bottom up and everybody knew exactly you know what was on the tin um however obviously movements like this is kind of undifferentiated rage it's very kind of vague and, and oftentimes when when that happens you end up just going for these very bizarre um, and, and little things that don't actually help anyone. But not only that, I actually think, not only does it not help anyone, I actually think it makes things massively worse. You know, as we talked about earlier, I think it is incredibly patronizing and to some extent dehumanizing to argue that ethnic minority, but particularly black people are uniquely um, vulnerable to the kinds of offensive things that they uniquely unable to handle um, things that are uncomfortable. And again, it homogenizes many ethnic minorities. Many ethnic minorities don't find these statues offensive. Many of them are interested in them. They want to understand the history and the complexity. In America right now, there's obviously been protests in Washington. And many of the defenders of the, the monuments and statues have been uh, elderly African-Americans, you know, uh, who, who know the history of those um, monuments um, and, and realize that these things are being destroyed. And with, with that destruction is also destruction of the history of African-Americans. Yeah, we've seen some. We've been talking about on the podcast a little bit uh, some terrible instances of of people who have actually fought to stop slavery back in the Civil mm. War, having their statues torn down, and and it's just just terrible stuff. Now, let's talk. Let's move on. You speak on your website a little bit about human agency, and that's one of the things you like to talk about uh, when you're doing your work. Um, one of your criticisms of systemic racism is that it blunts human agency. Now, what? What do you think are the keys to human agency uh, in, well, for everyone, but also for, for ethnic minorities that are disadvantaged compared to other groups? What are the, if it's like two or three things that help human agency in those contexts? Yeah, so I guess many of these things will be relevant to all people, not just ethnic minority. But, you know, a lot of the time it, it sounds kind of cliche, but, but these are in some senses universal truths. I think, um, I think that we we have to genuinely think about um, what we as individuals may or may not be doing in order to um, keep ourselves in kind of cycles of um, defeatist attitudes or grievances or victim mentalities. And I think that, you know, I 
I often relate it to my own personal situation in terms of things that I have done in my life in order to genuinely reflect upon that. I think we've got to um, think of ourselves as kind of individuals on a journey um, in this world and there's things that we can as individuals do in order to actually affect change. So that that means why do, why do society necessarily have to fundamentally um, change the kind of history curriculum to appeal to perhaps a specific group sensibilities, even if that's okay, I think that we have to understand um, the way that history um, has helped us to come to where we are today and what that means and how that might um, that story may be impacting us negatively and come to terms with that as individuals I think first and foremost we have to come to terms with that before anything else um, can be kind of done on top of that you know we talk a lot about um, you know there's a lot of conversations in Britain and, and also America about kind of systemic racism in policing and this that and the other but you know people don't like to talk about it but the reality is we've also got to talk about the disproportionate levels of um, crime that are often plaguing many ethnic minority communities and i think that we also have to take responsibility for why um, many people um, particularly from ethnic minority communities in the uk black communities are being drawn to certain ideas um certain um ways of living that may be detrimental and so i think it's 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 kind of that whole Jordan Peterson clean up your room type of thing. I think that I, I do genuinely think that is meaningful and I fully believe it because I think how can we um, talk about fundamentally restructuring and ordering society when there's things in our own life that are um, we can actually already do in order to improve or, or um, disadvantage our own situation. And when I find a lot of the ethnic minority people in America, in Britain and other places that talk about this stuff, um, about kind of taking responsibility, they're finding that um, they got to their position, not necessarily because society, um, you know, handed them things, gave them a leg up, because they did certain things in their life which, which um, took responsibility for what they needed to do um, to improve themselves. So yeah, as I said in the beginning, for young people, yeah, know your stuff, educate yourself, you know, self-discipline, personal responsibility. These are, these are universal truths, but they, they actually um, work. Uh, speaking of personal journeys, uh, Pete, when he was doing a bit of research, found an article from you saying uh, in 2018 saying institutional racism still entrenches many aspects of Western society. Uh, but then, you know, obviously coming from this interview, you've had a change of mind. So what what changed your mind for you? Like, was uh, was it getting out of university or was it, uh, you know, thinking things differently? Yeah, I think it did, it was getting out of university. And again, so there are particular ideologies and narratives that I think are massively perpetuated in university. And it, it comes from a very academic um, and ideological standpoint versus the evidence itself. And so for a long time, and this is one of the reasons why I feel I can speak about these things, because I've genuinely, um, at some point for a very brief period in my life, believed many of the narratives that were being told. And But un unlike the other people, um, unlike some other people, you know, if I see evidence to the contrary, but I'm not bound by any of these ideologies. So if I see that actually maybe that's not fully the case, and I'm not gonna just keep believing it, knowing that it's not fully true. So I, I, I did believe that actually there was institutional racism, that society to some extent was structured against black people. But then I looked at the statistics and I found that, for example, British Nigerian kids have a 21% higher educational attainment um, than the population at large. I found that, um, you know, a, a report by the Creative Diversity Network found that black and ethnic minority on-screen representation 
is 23% compared to them being 14% of the population. So I'm starting to think, well, well, where is the underrepresentation? Where, where is the um, systemic racism? You know, people talk about, even in the Britain, they're talking a lot about deaths in police custody. According to the BBC's own statistics, white people were 25% more likely to die in police custody than black people. So I think I realize that there's a lot of fact-free um, narratives that are being told based purely on ideology and not actually based on the material evidence. And so, yeah, I've ch genuinely changed my mind on it. And I think, as I said, because I came from that view, I can see clearly more why it's wrong, how it harms the people that it's claiming to protect, and actually how it actually has a very detrimental impact on social cohesions and social relations. So, Anaya, we know that you ran for election at, uh, last year in December. Uh, you're also director of the Free Speech Union and a columnist. What is next for, new, for you for the next few years, if you're willing to tell our listeners? Oh, my God. <laughs> Honestly, to be honest, so much has happened. I, I don't even think a year ago I could have predicted what would have happened now. Obviously, I'm very grateful and, and happy that I can contribute to this conversation and debate. I think that um, in some senses I will probably... I would like to start something in what form that would take, I'm not sure, to respond to this particular moment in regards to, to the racial conversation. I think that um, um, I never really necessarily wanted to get involved in the racial conversation because, as you said, I'm interested in kind of free speech and democracy. But I think as somebody that um, knows quite profoundly that a lot of what is saying isn't true, or at least if not fabricated, at least exaggerated, in some senses I felt kind of a moral obligation to kind of stand up against it because I think it has such a detrimental impact. And so I'm hoping to create something very soon that will hopefully respond to a lot of um, what I would argue is the kind of negative and divisive consequences of the current identitarian narrative. So that will probably be my focus, at least for the short term. Can't wait to see it. And I thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, thank you too, uh, Inaya. That was such an awesome interview and really cool to talk to her. And um, yeah, I, I'm just, I was blown away. It was a really good chat. So hmm. let us now go through some stories uh, for the end of the show. Now, Pete, you've got a new segment. I've got a new segment with a crap name. So if you've got any help with the name, James or people out there, I'd really appreciate it. The segment is called Stop Destroying Statues of People That Have Done Far More for Disadvantaged Communities Than You Ever Will. Uh, tough to fit so, on a t-shirt. Tough to fit on a t-shirt, almost as long as the information I've got about this story. But as we know, we've been talking in recent weeks about, and James just talked about one actually in the villain section, uh, about statues of people that did stuff that ended slavery or defeated the Nazis, for example, um, or, or stood up for people from ethnic minorities. Here's another one. which Constance said, sent 91,000 men to fight the Civil War, including a person called Colonel Hans Christian Hegg. Colonel Hegg was a Norwegian immigrant and anti-slave activist and the leader of an anti-slave catch-up militia. Protesters tore his statue outside the state capitol down last week. So Colonel Hegg risked his life to end slavery and you've just torn his statue down. Please stop doing that. Yeah, but big... Big clap, big cl big clap to everyone for standing up to racism by doing yeah. that. You, you really, got you got him. Uh, yeah, just like, you know, so sad. Uh, uh, we'll move on to a funny story. So we're getting a new national anthem in the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, a long time coming. 
I mean, 200 years was a good run, so we've moved on. So amid a national reckoning, this coming from the New York Post, amid a national reckoning over racial tropes in culture, historian Daniel E. Walker, author Kevin Powell and others are calling to, quote, rethink the Star-Spangled Banner as a national anthem because this is about the deep-seated legacy of slavery and white supremacy in America. Uh, so this coming from uh, Walker, the uh, Daniel E. Walker, the historian Scott Key, who wrote uh, Star-Spangled Banner. Scott Key was literally born into a wealthy slaveholding family in Maryland, he was, and uh, he would then bring up his unsavory ties to other people, such as Andrew Jackson, Robin Taney. Now, why not, argues author Kevin Powell, replace a tune with John Lennon's Imagine? So there we go. Come on! Oh, thank you, Banner. You're gone. You are replaced with Imagine. I only hope it's sung by Gal Gadot. Pete, uh, I look, I'll start off with this. Okay. If you want to talk about problematic songwriters, yeah. and we're bringing up Francis Scott Key, just a brief Google of some of the stuff that John Lennon got up to. Maybe we don't want to be going down the Imagine path. That's exactly right. There's that Onion article about the guy who enjoys telling people that John Lennon engaged in domestic violence. Which is an article start. written about Peter Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> you love popping up with that little fun fact. It's true. You know, are we going to cancel the Beatles? Anyway, the thing about this song, James, is... Imagine? Oh, now there's another... There's a, yeah, Imagine. There's another problematic aspect of it. It's got it's Brotherhood completely of Completely overrated. Oh yeah, that's that's. Probably I love that. Imagine. Yeah, so Brotherhood of Man on on Imagine. I love Imagine as a song. I did go through the lyric. I sort of loved it as a teenager, and I checked the lyrics this morning. There's a lot of nihilistic ideas in there that I don't fully support, but I just cancel them out of my mind and think about it's just about hope for a better world. So I just cancel eighty percent of the song and take the bits that I want out. But yeah, I mean, for in terms of like the country's. Can I just say anthem, that's the solution to cancel culture? What Peter Gregory just demonstrated. Yeah. It's a beautiful song. Just follow Peter Gregory. This is what I've been telling people for years. <laughs> all right? Just do what Pete does. And I can play Imagine sort of... So I can play the intro to Imagine on the piano, which goes well at parties, but I can't do the next bit, so that doesn't go well. But anyway, it says Imagine There's No Countries in the song, so that's no good for a national anthem. What I didn't know about the American national anthem, James, is actually started in 1931. And the third verse re- references the hiling and the slave, which they never sing because it's you know about slaves. So that is that is interesting. But um, what have I got here? Yeah, no, nah, it's look. I think if he the song's about nothing, how can it be the national anthem? It's got like it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Well, this brings know. me to what I wanted uh, to think about, which was look. If we are going to get rid of the star-spangled banner, then what? Should the national anthem be replaced oh, yeah, with yeah, now, yeah. Pete? Did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts. I couldn't think right. of one, but then I thought of one, and I really like it. Uh, so my song, then we'll get into yours. My song to replace the national anthem of America because it's problematic is "Single Ladies" by Beyonce. Oh. Now, "Single Ladies" by Beyonce is about respect, self-confidence, standing on your own two feet, which are very American ideas. And if the British wanted to keep America, they should have put a ring on it. There we go. Uh, and <laughs> I don't mind the idea of a national anthem with dance moves attached. So that also yeah. works for me. Uh, don't say well, single ladies. Yeah, my idea. So basically, if you can't have a national anthem, then I think the only left, uh, the only response left to you is re- to replace the national anthem with the international players anthem. Uh, uncut version. Uh, you can't sense yourself in a national anthem. And I think it's... It, we should go down this because it remains a scandal on an international scale that there's not one nation out there that has a national anthem with an Andre 3000 verse. So once we can get that happening, we're back. What is the international players anthem? It is a hip hop banger 
of the greatest kind featuring our cast. So, you know, Dirty South represent. And I think that's just like, if you're not going to have a national anthem, you've got to have an international players anthem. There you go. There we Imagine, go. come on. No Imagine is such a weak choice. Uh, oh, I didn't uh, realise that the Dixie Chicks changed their names to just the Chicks. Yeah, and Lady Antelabam is now like Lady A. It's just like, um, you know, jumping in, like pre-cancellation of yourself is just the latest way of, uh, you know, throwing yourself into the lions in hopes that it'll eat you easiest. Like Tina Fey's mm. got four episodes of 30 Rock pulled down. Um Simpsons is saying we're not going to have any cartoons voiced by someone who's not that color. You just, you know, it's the self-cancellation which really gets me. But anyway, uh, I want to move on to last thing, which is this tweet that went viral from BBC Country Country File, uh, which is a show on the BBC over in the UK. Now, if a tweet from BBC Country File goes viral, something's gone wrong. Here's the tweet. While Dwayne Fields found solace in the landscapes of the UK and beyond, many in black, Asian, and minority ethnic groups see the countryside as being a white environment. That's their promo for the next episode of BBC Country File. The <laughs> nature is racist. I would like to see the evidence for that claim. Uh, that That's racist. That is racist. We need to start like actually calling that out as racist. You're just inventing this separateness, this idea that black people don't like... Like, what? Do you, what? Where's the evidence for that? Black people, I don't know. Don't like. I don't, what do people in England do in the country? Oh, they go to like a pub for lunch, or they go on a ramble. Well, black yeah. people don't like that. There's just. I would say, like, you know, in in, in defence, bird watching has got to be one of the widest uh, pursuits in history. But there's like probably. De- you go. I would say, apart from like defund the police movements, I would say bird watching would be the widest association of people in the world. There's probably. Non-white bird watches, though. No, I'm sure, I'm sure they're right. I'm just like, I'm, you wanted some evidence. I'm just I'm spitballing some evidence <laughs> for you, okay? I'm trying to help. Imagine what? how excited they must have been when they saw it had gone viral. They're like, oh, this yeah. episode, we've good. made it. Oh, that's what I want to say. Like, uh, Poor Dwayne Fields, by the way, because they tagged him in the tweet. And he's just, you know, he's just an, like, he's like a scout leader. He's got his own BBC show. I mean, he's living <laughs> his dream right now. And then suddenly he looks on Twitter and it's like, oh, that episode we spent a lot of time filming is now basically just a race baiting tweet. All right, great. So no one's going to watch the show and everyone's going to think that I'd made this. Because he followed it up by saying, anyone in the, saying the countryside is open to everyone is absolutely right. The piece looked at a report which highlighted some barriers and I wanted to investigate that so he's like look i don't think it is i'm just talking about it for the show i've just been absolutely sold down the river by bbc social that he's stitched up by the bbc country file social media person yeah so he would have just opened his mentions and gone you're kidding me. <laughs> this is not how i wanted to spend my day all right yeah, uh, that is it for the show this week thank you to anaya great chat and mm. uh yeah we'll see you guys around see ya